awareness explorers are on vacation. On rare occasions, we will republish interviews and episodes that we thought were especially good. We hope you enjoy this insightful interview we did with Adyashanti from 2019. See you next time. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within. To seek out new joys and new methods of awakening. To boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Love it. I feel like I'm in some big motion picture now waiting for the movie to begin. (laughs) You are, you are. Well, welcome Awareness Explorers. Uh, Great to have you back. And for our new listeners, uh, welcome for the first time. We're excited today to have guest teacher Adyashanti. Before I interview him, I want to say hi to my co-host, Brian. How are you doing, Brian? Very well, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited. Me too. Yeah. For our new listeners, uh, Awareness Explorers is dedicated to exploring ideas and methods for awakening and how to integrate such experiences into daily life. So we have a well-known spiritual teacher, Adyashanti. Most of you probably know who he is, but I'll just mention a few things about him. Adyashanti is an American spiritual teacher that offers silent retreats around the world. He's the author of a lot of books, The Way of Liberation, Emptiness Dancing, True Meditation, The End of Your World, and most recently, The Most Important Thing. If you want to find out more, you can look him up at adyashanti.org. And I want to welcome you, Adyashanti. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Jonathan. It's nice to be here with you both. Great, great. Well, you know, we have a bunch of listeners that we said, what would you like to ask uh, Adyashanti? And we got inundated with questions. And of course, Brian and I have questions. But the first question I want to ask is, I want to assume that we don't really know what's best. And you have a lot of experience awakening. You have a lot of experience people asking you questions. What question do you think is really good for people to focus on or to ask you to get to their next level? What question do you rarely get or do you want people to ask you that, that uh, you don't always get that opportunity to answer? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that itself is a, is a kind of interesting question. <laughs> um, one of the things I've, I've noticed over the years, I'm often surprised um, how, how seldom I actually get asked directly about awakening. <laughs> and I think every spiritual teacher probably has that, right? Because everybody that comes to us has their life and whatever they're dealing with and whatever, you know, emotional state they're, they're, uh, you know, they're trying to navigate. And so often questions are around, around that. But I think, you know, when, since you framed it the way you did, you know, around awakening or, or, you know, questions that I think are most important, it's hard to say what's most important because that question is relative to, to each individual's life, what is important to them. But I think, you know, in a, the, in a broad sense, um, it seems like there's this, this line of demarcation where, where our whole orientation shifts from 
you know, life and spirituality itself and everything can, can be, and usually this is where we start, where we're coming from a, I guess you could call it an egocentric perspective, which I don't say that with any judgment around it, right? It's just a particular way of experiencing and perceiving life. And from that perspective, we tend to look at things, especially things like spirituality, let's say, and like, well, how can this improve my life? How can it help me deal with, how can I feel better or more free or connect with God or, you know, whatever that, that agenda might be. But then there becomes this, this sort of shifting of orientation. And I guess you could call it shifting of agenda too, where all of a sudden it becomes less about how to manage your, your emotional life, let's say. That's important, of course. But it becomes more about sort of our most, I like to think of it, our most existential sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Right, because we realize all this is pertaining to me, every every aspect of life, at, le- at least from the egocentric perspective. You know, um, it 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 all is is about oneself. And again, I I'm not saying that w- with any kind of positive or negative spin. It's just like that tends to be where we spend a lot of time. And there then there comes a point where we go, well, geez, what is that that I call me? What is it that seems like every question I have? You know, all my motivations are seem to be coming from this sort of central place that we call me or I. And I think that's where a real critical turn in almost our spiritual evolution comes when we become interested in what that is, rather than how to make it feel as happy as possible or as good as possible or even as connected as possible. We're like, what is that that is seeking connection or happiness or freedom or and to really be legitimately interested in that is mm-hmm. we kind of have to evolve our way into it like you know people can hear the question who am i or things like that but until they're at the place where that where that question is alive for them it will feel dry and it won't it won't really resonate they'll be i don't they just can't get any energy behind it but i think once somebody crosses a kind of you know unwritten line you could say all of a sudden it's like, hmm, what is that that I call myself that seems to be living this life and on a spiritual pursuit and all the other orientations that it has? That, I think, is the, the beginning of a, of a deeper form of spiritual engagement. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting because that so dovetails with actually what I was planning to ask as my first question, because mm-hmm. uh, in your book, uh, The Most Important Thing, I'm really fascinated by that idea, The Most Important Thing. Mm-hmm. And for instance, when I started my spiritual search, I wasn't looking for enlightenment. The most important thing for me was simply to not be depressed anymore and not to be afraid of shame and, and criticism. But yeah. um. And that's legitimate, right? Like when that's a big part of our life, then those issues and those questions around those issues are, are where we need to be focusing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I had a hunch that maybe the way maybe the way into it was because I spent so much time protecting my ego. Mm -hmm. My hunch was maybe the way was to inquire into the reality of the ego. Yeah. So then now the most important thing for me is is trying to see through the illusion of the ego, or you, you call it the false self, 
when the perception of subject and object collapses. Mm -hmm. So to try to understand or experience or, or deeply realize the, the absence of self. But that's, that's pretty tricky, but I think that's... So it is. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty tricky because all of a sudden we enter into a realm of extreme paradox, you know, right. and it's, that becomes a way. And then we have to learn how to navigate intuitively rather than with just the, the linear conceptual part of our brain. Because I think the deeper we go, we run into paradoxes, you know, like there is no self and there is a self. And both of them sort of have a kind of legitimacy to it. It's almost like if we could push those two perceptions or experiences of being together, they, they form this greater whole that is often to our minds quite paradoxical. Well, when mm -hmm. I think of the self, I, I, I think of the body and I hear people talk of the separate self because yeah. the body is what seems separate. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't really find a sense of self that's not actually in thought. But the sense of self seems to describe the body. So it's difficult to see the concept of no self. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is that self that there is none of? Yeah, it's a, it's a so this is a tricky area, okay? Uh, because I approach this maybe a little bit more paradoxically than I think a lot of people do, and especially let's just look at it from the ego's point point of view. I think in spirituality, I talk this way a lot. I think a lot of spiritual teachers throughout time have talked about the ego, you know, as some version of saying the ego is sort of a false identity. Um, it's an image, as you suggested. It's it has to do with the ways we think. It's this unending, seemingly unending sort of narrative, right, mm -hmm. behind everything we do. So there's ego as a sort of conceptual um, and image that our mind holds, and so that that can be seen through, right? We can start to see, we can see through, like, oh, that is, if I'm not thinking about myself geez, what just happened to the self that I know and so familiar with? If I don't have a refer to an image, you know, obviously something is still here in the present moment, even when we see that all the thoughts about ourselves are just thoughts and all the images we have, good, bad, and indifferent, are just images. So that's sort of the beginning. And that's just a description, of course, of starting to see through the illusion of sort of the solidity of ego, that ego is a sort of thing inside of us. Uh, like ego is a noun when it's not. At best, it's a verb, right? Mm -hmm. A verb of mm -hmm. thinking and imaging. But the other part of it is there's also ego as function. And I think those two can be useful to sort of pry apart a little bit because ego as function is our, has something to do with self-awareness, right? Ego evolves out of becoming self-aware. The, the moment that we start to realize that we are, we are a somebody or a something in this vast world, usually happens somewhere between like two and six, seven years old. Um, and then there's this sort of function of ego, which is that, which from that, from, from that ego as function, part of that function is also our ability to differentiate me against me and you, me in the world. And part of that, of course, is we could say ultimately illusory, but at times practically useful. Mm 
right? So to yeah. call, to call, you know, to call you by your names, right? To call you by Jonathan and Brian is a useful fiction, right? We can say that there, the, the reality of you transcends not only that name, but a lot of the ideas, memories, and all the rest that go along with it. But nonetheless, as a function, it's, it's useful to be able to differentiate and discriminate. Um, so when we're seeing through the ego, I think it's important to realize we're seeing, we're not really, we don't want to be deprived of the ability to differentiate when we need to discriminate. That's part of wisdom. And actually, we're using the differentiating and discriminating aspect of ego to see through ego, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's the differentiating part that can go, okay, there's, there's my sense of being, and then there's a bunch of thoughts. That's differentiating. That's using discrimination. So it's, I find this really ironic. We're using the function of ego to ultimately see through ego as sort of this fixed image in our in our minds and not just in our minds, we feel all this stuff too, don't we? Mm-hmm. So then you feel it and it's, it's, it's part of your emotional environment. Yeah. It's like that uh, old story about the thorn that's uh, used to take out the other thorn and then you throw them both away. Exactly. That's a great image. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of those thorns, thorns to me in that uh, metaphor are really tools that we're using techniques and you know i've been on the path a while and meditation is you know very uh, enjoyable for me rather easy at this point but 95 percent of my life has not spent meditating yeah and what i'm always wondering is how to make use of that 95 percent so since we spend most of our time doing activities nowadays and uh, talking, email, whatever. I'm always curious what can help with awakening awareness when we're not meditating, when we're not separating ourselves, that might be a useful technique or tool. Mm-hmm. I think what begins to or can begin to bridge that gap between what people experience in meditation and, their, and in their lives is and our life becomes, well, it's the more challenging version of meditation, really. I think it would almost be best if we just saw meditation as an orientation of being that sometimes I, I, I practice it in a seated traditional way. And then the rest of the time I'm still oriented in that direction through everything I do. So what is, what is that? What does that actually mean? In a simplified version, I think one of the things that we hopefully get in touch with, with meditation at least initially, is we start to realize that there's more going on than just the endless narrative in the rhyme, that that narrative is going on within a, an actually a very quiet space. So mm-hmm. it's going on in a quiet space. That's kind of a, for a lot of people, that's kind of revolutionary. Like all my, all my mental noise is happening within a quiet space. Hmm. What's so we can explore that, right? What's that feel like? What's the sense of that? Intuitively explore that. So it's happening within a, within a uh, quiet space. Okay, now we go into our daily life. Well, what would it be like for me to have the next conversation I have if I was having a conversation from that quiet space? Hmm. Right? Was, what if I was in a state of being that was not just me experiencing quiet, but 
sort of being the quiet space and letting it talk and or letting what is it what's the difference between like walking to your car lost in your narrative and how does the quiet space inside you walk to your car and there's no right or wrong way to do it right it's not like you come up with a prescription here's the way i'm supposed to do it because then that gets very you know stiff and overly self-conscious but it's what i find when people just start to kind of enter into this it's kind of like a living inquiry right so they're mm. walking down the hallway at work and they realize i could walk down this hallway kind of lost in my narrative or i could think well how would how does quietness or how does silence or how does this awareness walk down the hallway and there's no answer to that in our minds right it's like it can evoke uh, a perspective and what i find is when people actually do it you know sometimes it's a little confusing to hear about it but when they actually do it when they actually ask the question like what's the difference between walking down the hallway lost in my narrative or letting the quietness walk down it's usually very very quick do they realize there is a difference there's a difference in what you sense and what you feel even in what you hear and what people say the way you respond mm -hmm. so this is just a sort of an initial initial way of of starting to close that gap you know between some of what one can experience in meditation and the the rest of life we just see well life is just another opportunity to um for the meditative perspective let's say yeah. to to function and of course that's easy to say right it's it's challenging like when you're challenged or your boss criticizes you and you know you can but one of the nice things about meditation is you get a little bit of space between the next reaction of your mind and you whatever you've experienced yourself to be so all of a sudden your boss criticizes you feel this rush even physically you know of of energy of emotion and how all that might turn into thought one of the nice things meditation gives you it it gives you the space to notice it, right? Not just immediately be deluged and identified with it. And then there's an option. Okay, where am I going to respond from? Right? I can respond from this tidal wave of conditioned emotion that you really have no, no way of keeping that from happening, right? You can't, you can't stop things that, that start before you're even aware of them, right? From happening. But once they do happen, I think meditation, this is sort of initial stuff, but it's really important. Meditation gives you options. It shows you there are options, actually. I can get lost or I can not get lost. I can listen to the noise. I can listen to the quiet spaces. I can speak from my noisy mind or what it, what it might be like if the quietness inside me spoke. And so all those are kind of options. And I think that's the beginning of, of sort of bringing spirituality in our life together because in its truest sense, spirituality is really just another word for life. Right? I think we have to get out of this mindset that it's this segmented part of our life, right? I do, I do spirituality for 30 minutes in the morning when I'm meditating. And then when I'm not, you know, then it's segmented. But if your life spirituality and life are actually synonymous they're they're the same thing really then there's a different engagement so your life becomes a living exploration 
like I liked your question, what would it be like if this was done in a different part of my being than my narrative self? Yeah, Jonathan, I like the way you put that because I often utilize that. I see spirituality as, I call it living in a state of discovery. Hmm. And I think that's, in some sense, that's, that's essential because that's what, it, that's what it is. If we have that orientation, it sounds simple, but it's so different than probably the way a lot of us begin our spirituality and may do it for a very long time, which is that we're chasing after preconceived ideas or an explanation of awakening or what we read about enlightenment or something. And then we're not, in a, we're not really living in discovery. We're, we're trying to duplicate an experience that we've heard or read about. Mm-hmm. I think spirituality, when it's honest, and that's not always easy, and it's connected with you and your life, that fundamentally it is to live in a state of discovery all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? Not chasing somebody else's conclusions or trying to be in a particular state all the time, like all that sort of the egoic orientation. But to live in a state of discovery, to me, that's the foundation of, of the spiritual life. That's beautiful. One of the uh, discoveries I think that you highlight many times in your latest book is that discovering that the quietness or, or awareness or consciousness or beingness is already there. When all this stuff is happening, it's not that we have to get more awareness or more beingness. It's that we have to notice what's there already now, effortlessly. Yeah, that's the whole... I think that's the key. I call it the practice of acknowledgement. Ah. Like you were just doing that, actually. You were just acknowledging that awareness is always present, right? That mm-hmm. Just a minute ago, we were acknowledging that there is quietness even when the mind is busy. Of course, there's quietness when it's not busy. But these things are actually already there. We don't have to chase them. We don't have to try to make them happen. Really, if we want to think of it as a practice, it's sort of the intuitive practice of acknowledgement. What happens when I just say to myself, not just as an empty idea, but you start to sort of sense it intuitively, like, oh, the awareness that I'm always trying to practice and create, oh, it's, it's already here before I'm even trying to create it. The mere fact that I can see what I see, feel what I feel, sense what I sense, that means that my, the whole, my entire experience is sort of flooded with awareness from the very beginning. Now, what happens when we acknowledge that? That awareness is, it's functioning now. And then we stop for a moment, you know, like just sense it, feel it, even in your body. Because we have, it, it kind of comes down and, and we sense it, or beingness, oh, that's here, that weird sense of I am, even if I'm not an image or an idea or something I can hold on to, that's the sense of being, the sense of existing. And so, yeah, I think it's a very underappreciated sort of practice, which is the practice of acknowledgement. And maybe even the next step would be a moment of appreciation Mm. after we acknowledge. I'll take a moment, I'll take 15 seconds to appreciate, to feel what awareness, the sense of it. And I think that's, that's when things can really start to take off because then we're, we're back in our own immediate experience of being and we're acknowledging those aspects of it that lead to opening and freedom and awakening and connectedness 
you know, where in many ways, if you look at it, we're often taught to acknowledge and give so much attention to those things which confine us and define, define us and separate us. You know? and it's something we can do many, many times all day long throughout the day. That's the nice thing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 You don't have to have any special thing. You don't have to be curled up on a meditation cushion. You can just at, at any moment, you know, you can just, gee, is awareness here now? Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. That's a great thing. It's, it's always there. <laughs> yeah. That's the great thing about it, isn't it? Right. That's yeah, the, yeah. And for a lot of people, especially people who have been in spirituality or done a lot of meditative practice where they're always doing something with their awareness, it can be revolutionary to realize that the awareness that they think they're producing was there from the very beginning, mm -hmm. from the very start. Doesn't mean those other practices have no use because they do, but it can be almost revolutionary to go, holy smokes, the, the quietness and the peace and the awareness that I'm chasing in my meditation is actually there all the time. Mm -hmm. And if I was just to acknowledge it, maybe it would actually start to sort of grow and experience as happens in life. Whatever we give our experience to tends to grow. Yeah, I love that yeah. so much. In fact, I think holy smokes is such a great term. I think that's going to be my new mantra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing in life, you know. It just, it, I, it's so fascinating. I mean, sometimes it can be very humbling to see like, oh, what do I give my attention to? And so often, you know, the ego mind is giving inordinate amounts of attention to the very things that cause it to feel separated and isolated and alone and its judgments and it's, you know, all this stuff. And you realize, well, that's not all that's going on. That's just what I'm conditioned to give my attention to. If I give my attention to something that seems more fundamental, it's amazing. Just that can sort of open whole new doors, whole new vistas of insight. In a previous Awareness Explorers episode, we talked about the three types of awakening that uh, you talked about the retreat at Tahoe that I went to, you know, the head, the heart, the gut. And I'm wondering, is there any different focus if you're, I was a very mental person my whole life, and now I seem to be going through some more of a heart opening experience. Mm -hmm. Is there anything for me to do differently or other people to do differently if they were off balance and they want to kind of balance those types of awakenings? Well, I think the first thing is just to notice what you've just given voice to, which is like, oh, I tend to be a more cerebral oriented person, right? If we don't even think of these things as good or bad or right or wrong, is that's just how one can be oriented. Oh, okay, then something more heartful is often really, really useful, revelatory even, right? Mm -hmm. So we can sense, let's just take where we were a minute ago. We can sense awareness almost here, right? Up and around the head. And up here, awareness is like very vast and it's sky-like and it's spacious and it's transparent, right? It has all these mm -hmm. qualities if we sense it here, if we kind of bring it down here. How is the same awareness experienced through this perceptual organ, which I think the heart, general area that I'm calling the heart here is. And all of a sudden it's like, hmm, the sense of awareness now just becomes a little more intimate. There's a sense of closeness. There may open to a sense of love and connectedness even, but mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a sense of warmth. It's 
it's the same, but it's also different, right? And then, oh, and I drop down into the gut. Oh, now that's, that's, that feels different again. It's the same awareness, but there's this quality of, I call it kind of a solid emptiness. You know, where mm-hmm. it, here emptiness is spacious and sky-like, and here it's almost like a mountain of stillness or a mountain of emptiness. And so, yeah, I think it's useful to sometimes identify just where your, your native place where you tend to hang out. You know, like your condition tendency tends to hang out in your head or, uh, you know, some people are just in their, lost in their emotions all the time, right? And, and so it goes. And so I think it's good, good to see where you tend to hang out and to give attention almost to, okay, what would be the, the court, not so much the opposite, but something that would be intuitively more supportive of not just being lost in the, in the intellect all the time. And of course, I think in the West, I've <laughs> been doing this now for 22 and a half years. And one of the things that's become clear over to me over time is that in, in the West, we, are, we do tend to be so cerebrally oriented, right, with all of all the technology we have and all of that that I think and often so disconnected and the heart is the place of connection Hmm. and so I think it's for most westerners even if they're emotionally based because I think you can connect with the heart in a way that's deeper than emotion right than just the next emotion that comes down there's something like I said there's a intimate connectedness that is part of what compels one's whole spirituality is a sense of, boy, if we need anything in our society, I think we need to feel more connected, right? Connected with one another. And that's a very heartful thing. And then the the discovery of the heart, I think, can be that it's not just an emotional center, it is that, but it's also a perceptual center. It's like, this is where we ultimately experience unity. Mm. That's where it happens from you could say so just giving attention to that right what does awareness in the heart feel like Hmm. and then you just let yourself feel it Mm. of course awareness is not limited to a feeling but it has a corresponding feeling in in the body yeah and often people think of awareness as my awareness do you have a sense that it's actually everyone's awareness like one awareness looking out through billions of sets of eyes? Yeah, do you? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Sounds like you do too, Brian. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. I think, of course, there's the fundamental confusion, let's say, right, is that awareness is something that I do, that I own, that I produce. And that's the fundamental illusion. That's the, that's the interesting thing when we really start to look within and look for the somebody that owns, possesses, and produces awareness. And the more you look in, you strangely can't find it, which is weird because we're so convinced that it's there. We're so convinced that I'm here somewhere, and yet I can't find myself anywhere. And that's kind of a surprise, isn't it, when we, that no, awareness isn't something I possess. It's not even something I do. It's much more something I am. Mm. a dimension of my of my being and yeah your awareness and my awareness are the same awareness 
it's the same awareness looking out through all the eyes as you said or hearing through the through the ears and and all the rest and right there i think there's a there's a kind of connectedness with that right because if i look at you and i intuitively just through intuitively sensing into you if i sense that what's looking at me is the same as looking at you that's an intimate connection right there mm. So I've often given people, this is a practice, like when you meet, the next time you come up to somebody, just see if you, in, without saying any to, anything to them at all, just see if you can intuitively connect with the awareness or the presence that they are, right? Which is more fundamental than their personality. And, and what people find, and often they find it relatively quickly, that they can kind of have a sort of, initial connection like oh yeah there is something about us that's the same and when we intuitively make that connection like i said without even saying anything to the person it changes the quality of that engagement doesn't it yeah in some way we can never predict but and in order to go off into our stories or our condemnations or our judgments or whatever we need at first to disconnect from that connectedness Hmm. we need to disconnect so we can kind of get lost in whatever our narrative whereas if we stay connected it's a different engagement and the last thing i'll just mention on this is and i would think any, anybody can do this so like we're we're talking if we're connected with our sense of being or just <laughs> connected period you know almost from the neck down if you or i were to say a single word, much less a sentence, but let's say a word that wasn't really true for us, we would, you can feel it. You can feel it in your body. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. And the more aware you get it and the more awake you get, actually those moments when we speak an untrue thought affect the body even more and more and more until I remember years ago when I was really living with this as a as an exploration, that I would be having a conversation like we're having, let's say, with somebody, could even be somebody in the grocery store line. If I said a word that wasn't, that wasn't quite really true, I would feel like as if somebody poured rat poisoning into my bloodstream for a moment. And it really taught me something like, I don't have to always try to intellectually figure out what's real at least from your perspective or what's true you just have to listen to your feel your body it'll tell you right when we go into a place that's not really true or disconnected we'll feel a contraction we won't feel good and that's a cool thing to know because it takes all the abstraction out of it right it's like no your body is very hooked up to feel in flow and open and spacious when you're connected and honest and sincere mm. and when you're not it doesn't tend to feel good and you can feel it yeah. and that's a really great thing because it's like i said it we, we've got this i call it like a truth an embodied truth teller and it's it's our body that <laughs> feels good when we're in flow and truth and sincerity and honesty and contracted and protected and defensive when we're when we're not I have a question about bodies that way. Um, I know that you've gone through a lot of physical pain and yeah. 
just like any human being, loss and things like that. How has awakening affected how you experience those things differently? Yeah, that's a good question. It all has to do with degrees. (laughs) In general, it helps a tremendous amount because I think one of the things that when you, if you have a lot of pain, fortunately, I haven't had a lot of pain for a couple of years, but I've certainly went through 11 or 12 years with very, very intense amounts of pains at time. And one of the things you realize is that, boy, you don't touch a thought about it, right? Because thought goes into future and the future never looks good when you're in that state. And the nice thing about having a more awake state of being is, is, you know, you know, that that commentary, that whatever narrative might be created is not a place to put any attention. It's, it's, it's just your mind's way of trying to deal with, with pain. So to be more oriented towards what's actually really occurring is, it's, it can be life-changing, just that. You know, so there's pain that. but less suffering. Much less. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can be in pain. Awakening doesn't keep us from pain. Right. <laughs> if you hit some awake person over the head with a brick, it's going to hurt them just as much as it's going to hurt somebody who's never even heard of awakening. But how they relate to that pain, that's what's going to be different. It's not going to be taken um, pers- in a personal way. Right. It's still pain. But boy, when we take it in a personal way, we transform pain and we add in the element of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, and for, I think, a lot of people, it's kind of revolutionary that you can be in pain without being in suffering. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, that one I had a lot of practice with. <laughs> and I think we all will. I mean, who's going to get out of here without some sort of illness, tragedy, death of somebody you love, you know, there's a tragic component to life. I think this is what the Buddha was touching into when he talked about suffering as an intimate aspect of existence, which I, I think of it as there's a tragic, from the, from the relative point of view at least, there's a tragic element to life, right? Everyone that you love, you will say goodbye to or they say goodbye to you, if, even if only at the end of life. And, you know, most people will get sick and most people will lose jobs and there's all sorts of things that happen that we could call the tragic aspect to life. And I think awakening isn't about thinking that we're going to get a furlough from all that. Like the awake people don't, they, they, they're protected from the tragedies of life. They're no more protected than anybody else is, but the way that it's encountered and experienced can be, and is quite, quite, quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, again, discrimination comes in and starts to notice in one's experience, what's the difference between pain and suffering? And that's a really interesting inquiry to notice. Or if, say, you lose a loved one, what's the experience of, of deep grief and suffering? I mean, those, they're very close, right? Suffering and grief. And you could say grief is a kind of suffering, okay, sure, it is a kind of suffering, but there's a way that we can experience something like grief that is not debilitating like it often is, you know, when we're in resistance to it. 
Yes, yeah. I think that's story. what the more conscious we are, the less we're in resistance to what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and a very awake person is in little, if any, conflict with what they're experiencing. It's the, it's the resistance and the pushing against uncomfortability or the track aspect. That's what creates probably 95% of our suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> That is a lot. And that's the part that's optional, right? It's not, it's not like that is set in stone. It's like, no, that's actually optional. And it depends on what state of being we're in, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That added on story that somehow this shouldn't be. Right. Right. This shouldn't be happening. But, which is colliding with what is happening. Right. 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 Yeah. And that's a weird thing is from our ego minds, is often protect, trying to protect us from what is happening, mm-hmm. which it can never do, right? It just adds misery to what's happening. Mm-hmm. But that's part of one of its confusions mm-hmm. is that we need to be protected from difficulty. What if we just have difficulty? All of a sudden it's like, oh, that's not overwhelming anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe even the first time I experienced this, we were talking about grief a minute ago. Um, I had lost in my 20s, mid-20s, my favorite dog. And those of you who are pet lovers, and some of you know there's specific pets that can get inside of you, and their loss can be experienced like the loss of a lover or a parent or something very profound. And I've had a lot of people tell me that their loss of their pets were harder for them than loss of loved ones, which is often confusing to people. But I had one of those kind of losses, you know, and I was just devastated by the loss of this, this, this dog and won't go into the whole story. But at one point, actually, when I was sort of reading through a eulogy I'd written for the burial when we were doing that, and uh, this wave of grief just sort of came to me. And something inside just said, okay, I'm just going to stop resisting this. I'm just going to let myself be like a wave. Like I'll just let it crash over me. And so there I'm reading this thing and, you know, I have, you know, when you're crying, it's almost a solid line of tears coming off your chin and a continuous stream was kind of like that when you completely lose control and you're just a mess. And something about totally letting that happen this thing, going back to where we were in the heart, remember in the, when I was a kid, like in the 70s, 80s, they had those little yellow buttons that, with a, that were yellow with a smile, smiley figure on top, just a smile. Mm-hmm. One of those started to appear right in my heart. It was really small, but over about a three minute period of time, it just and expanded and it was like it encompassed the whole universe. Like here was the weird thing. Not only was it really weird that I was experiencing this unimaginable sense of love and well-being, but I was experiencing it and simultaneously experiencing the grief. Mm-hmm. It didn't replace the grief, you see. It were, they were coexisting. It was like I discovered the flip side of grief, like the flip side of a coin. And, and you know, this was before I had any awakening or anything, but I was very spiritually engaged in my spiritual practice. But it was the first time that I really realized that the idea here might not be to try to protect ourselves from certain emotions, but actually open to them fully. 
And then we get, they can, I call it the emotion converts itself. It shows itself its other side mm-hmm. because everything has an other side, just like um, anger, let's say. If we could experience, which is different than acting on it, but totally let experience a moment of anger, even rage. If you can just really open to it, opening to it is different than being kind of possessed by it, but just open to it. Often there's this extreme kind of clarity that we don't usually associate with anger at all. We usually associate it with a fractured mind and fractured feelings, but there can be this incredible clarity and this incredible sense of caring because, of course, the only reason you're getting upset is because you care about something. Maybe you just care about your self-centered opinion or idea, but nonetheless, you care. And when you connect with anger and caring, all of a sudden, now you've got this very rich paradoxical experience and you're not as prone to get possessed by the anger because you're experiencing that you're angry and you deeply care. Mm. You wouldn't be angry if you didn't care about something. So I often say, find out what you care about when you're angry. Acknowledge that and then feel that and then see what happens to that experience. So, you know, this, even our emotional experience of being has so much, so many discoveries to be made that are part of it. I appreciate how much you've explored. I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, do a little guided meditation. I know at your retreat, I got so much out of them and I think our listeners would really benefit from a little bit of guiding us to where you would like us to go. Okay, maybe four or five minutes? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, we're gonna do that. So maybe if we could just kind of, everybody just kind of close their eyes if you can, (laughs) when you're listening to this, if you're driving, don't do that. But just kind of close your eyes and just for a moment, don't do anything. Don't even try to meditate for a moment. We're not gonna focus our attention for a moment. And there's just the immediate experience of being. It's not right, it's not wrong. If you have thoughts, you have thoughts. If you don't, you don't. And so in meditation, In one sense, we're allowing our entire experience of being, whatever it is in that moment, simply to be exact, just the way it is. No interference, no control, no trying to run to a different experience. So that's the first part of at least this meditation is What do you experience? What happens inside of you when you allow the entirety of your experience, even if your experience includes things you don't like, what happens when you allow your experience to be just the way it is? Does it change the way you feel in any way? And you're just noticing it, right? And so the next thing then is, without trying to understand anything, 
just notice that your entire experience, whatever that is at this moment, is already happening within a field of awareness. In other words, you're aware of this moment before you even try to be aware of it. So we're just acknowledging, oh, awareness is already here, it's already present, it's already functioning. Hmm. And you just let yourself sit for a moment in just that recognition. That awareness isn't something you have to make happen or enhance. But just by giving it acknowledgement, intuitive felt sense acknowledgement, it becomes a bit more obvious. So we're not defining awareness, we're not trying to understand it, we're just noticing that it's a part of every experience. And lastly, this is just a short little meditation, but I often like to suggest in the last four or five minutes of any meditation, this will be the last minute of it, that whatever your intuitive or felt sense of being the meditator is, that could be the someone who's tracking what I'm saying or trying to do it or whatever your sense of being the someone who's meditating is. Just the, se the intuitive sense of that. Just invite it to relax. Maybe the meditator can just be acknowledged and we just let go of it. Maybe for a moment you touch upon meditating happening without a meditator. without the sense that somebody's doing it or even needs to do it. That perhaps what we call meditation is something that's actually continuously happening at the core of our being. It's a description of something deep inside us, what it's already doing. And again, we just take five seconds just to sense, feel into that acknowledgement. Oh, meditation happens even when I'm not trying to do it. When the meditator just relaxes, even right out of the body, because it's a, the meditator is an overall tension throughout the body-mind. And as soon as you notice it, just like you exhale a breath, you can just sort of let that tension fall out of you. And what's left is meditation in its truest sense.
And then just as a way of concluding this quick meditation, you just kind of come back, just notice your breath for a moment in the belly. It's very light, right? We don't have to bring a big sense of the doer back in, just kind of reconnect with the body, your feet on the floor. And then when you open your eyes in just a moment, just see if you can open your eyes without immediately leaving this deeper dimension of being. So we can just open our eyes. And you notice that deeper dimension, even though the, the sights come in and that they can come into that deeper, more fundamental dimension of being. So that that's was the meditation. Ex exquisitely delicious and perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I know you have to go. We have been honored by your presence. I'm so grateful from my heart. Thank you so much. You're yeah, so thanks. welcome, both and, of you. Uh, on behalf of all our listeners too, and me, I'm so grateful that you could share your time and wisdom and thoughts with us. And, uh, and it was fun talking to you. I had, I had, it was joyous to me. It seemed like about two minutes long. So that always tells me I enjoyed both of you, Brian, Jonathan, tremendously. Yeah. That's great. This is really fun. I, I really got, I got a chance to meet both of you. I, I like, I much. like the feel of both of you guys. There's something very familiar and has a nice energy to it. So I'm glad mm -hmm. we could connect in this way. Fun. Excellent. Thank Great you. Good to hear. We like to tell all our listeners at the end to keep exploring. Keep exploring. Yeah. <laughs> I'll second that. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And we'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love. Now, how do you get off Zoom? I don't know. <laughs> I think I get up and leave it to the people that know how to get me off. Right, right, right. Well, I can st I'll, st I'll stop recording.